Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Christopher Fowler is best known for his fiction. We talked to him last year about his latest Bryant and May mystery. But before he became a full-time writer, he had a day job, nay, a career, first in advertising and then in film publicity. And while you may not realize it, you have certainly come across his work. Film Freak is an acute and self-deprecating memoir of his glittering successes and, yes, some of his hilarious failures. This is Tim Haig Reads Books with Film Freak, and it says on the front, starring Christopher Fowler, which I think means that you wrote it. And so this is a, well, it's a, it's a, no, it's not an autobiography. No, it's, it's a memoir. No, it's not a memoir, is it? It's a cultural history. Not a cultural history so much as a, a love letter to movies or even a, a sort of a, a, a love story, a sort of bromance love story. What is it, Chris? It's all of these things. It is. I, I kind of... Um over the years, I make endless notes about films because you know you're passionate about films. You want to tell people about them, and then that kind of evolved into pieces that ended up involving members of my family, friends, various people walking through, and they got included as well. And so it became this sort of yeah. I I don't think you can do a, a film history without bringing in the circumstances when films were seen. I think you know if, uh, the trouble with an awful lot of books about films is they they kind of lift films out of the time when they were made and the audiences who saw them and in a way I kind of wanted to put that those elements back in and of course you did work in the film industry um, on a, a slightly peripheral level you you were in film publicity in fact uh, my listener is going to uh, know your work. You, you, you can you can guess where exactly where I'm going with this one, can't you? <laughs> yeah, I can. it's, it's the one everybody wants to do, and, and the, the, the Daily Telegraph pulled it out. But you wrote that line for the film Alien in space. No one can hear you scream. Yeah. Well, we, but what, happened, what used to happen is you used to get invited along to, to screenings of films you knew nothing about at all. And it was like sort of wet Tuesday morning when go along and see Alien, and you know, right, sort of rough cut and scared the pajamas out of everybody. And then they commission you to do you know, uh, copy lines for the poster. And I think that in those days you used to get something like 20 quid a page. So you, you know, I think it was probably one of about 200 that oh, we hammered out. But it's the one. And you're very modest about it. You, you sort of, uh, you say in the book, oh, other people must have thought of this. But if they had, they'd have used it. So oh, well, I, I say that yours. because I say that because uh, whenever, um, uh, anything that we created over the years of, of 30 years in the film industry of making everything from movie trailers to those hour-long documentaries on Bond that always used to go out on uh, Boxing Day. We, we did everything except, we always used to well, say... We they do still everything. do those, but you don't make them. Yeah, they still do them. And we always used to say we do everything except make the film. Um, so you do the photo shoots and, and actually often write um, jokes for visiting... Um, actors who who were going to be on like chat shows who weren't naturally funny people, and so there are some of those. A lot of those around. <laughs> so you'd often end up writing, you know, often giving them a pile of jokes to do. I did a whole load of jokes for Leslie Nielsen when he was doing the Naked Gun films because he was profoundly deaf and he had these two huge hearing aids, and but he was quite happy to you know read and memorise stuff. So he had these quips that he'd drop him. Now before that, of course, you, you were in the advertising. Uh, business. Yep. You, mm. you started out in advertising and did all sorts. And you're very funny about it in in, in the book with <clears throat> some of the uh, the campaigns you did. Brentford nylons. You're Brentford very rude nylons. About. Horrible, genuinely awful ads. Um, I think we did two a week with Alan Fluff Freeman. 
Are you, um, uh, you know, I mean, you, you describe Brentford uh, nylons as, as, as making sheets that, that, that uh, you know, you, you cling to you with uh, static electricity, and and you say that they they cling to you like a like, like a, an ugly, ugly grateful sex partner, which <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs> well, uh, sort of just does conjure a picture. Yeah, actually, you're pretty that. good with a simile. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a there's a film a terrible film that you saw that where you say the audience laughed with the desperation of cancer stricken children at their last panto. <laughs> well, because often you have these premieres where you are surrounded by the the distrib- the staff from the distribution company, all studying the audience desperately wanting them to have a good time, and when you're sitting there overlooked by a whole bunch of people going go on laugh. It's the most unfunny thing in the world, and you, and that it kills the room. And yeah, I think uh, I think I mentioned in the book we we went to the premiere of Hair, uh, which was actually Milos Forman, you know, great movie, still stands stands up as being a very underrated film. But um, the distributors didn't know what to do with it, and so they thought music. Uh, we'll get Morris dancers in the theatre, you know. This, and then they, they didn't do that. And then they, they, I think we used the Morris dancers for "Can't Stop the Music," which was the. But these disco people were always movie. terribly literal when they hair, so everybody had to have wigs. And when yeah, you, you say oh, the, the up. Yeah, you you saw the premiere of Soap Dish, and the, the free giveaway was a soap dish. <laughs> of course, it was. <laughs> somebody got paid for coming up with that. I think I've still got a bronze um, Planet of the Apes pencil holder where you basically just stick pencils in a gorilla's head. You know, I can't believe that somebody gets paid good money for coming up with these things. Well, while you were working in advertising, you met the man who was going to become your your business partner and best friend. I said it was kind of a bromance. You you, you were as close as uh, as two blokes can be. Yeah. Um, Tell me about Jim Sturgeon. He was uh, working in an advertising agency, he was profoundly dyslexic, and he was a storyboard artist who then became a producer. And he had all the business savvy that I didn't have. But he was also very creative, but we both loved movies, both wanted to get out of advertising, both hated advertising. I I think I was working on Golden Wonder Crisps at that point, and he was doing country and western music, and we just were ready to kill ourselves. And we thought, what can we do? And there was this area which was film marketing, which nobody had ever thought about seriously. The posters were done by a handful of old boys in um, in Soho. There was, there was drawn or painted back they were, for they some were, reason. They Why were drawn, was that? They were drawn. Well, some of them were drawn in the old-fashioned pencil pens because rank films wouldn't pay for paint, and it was cheaper to make them use pencils. So, <laughs> I mean, these things these were really done, knocked out for pence. And, of course, the artists never got the rights to their own work. You know, it went off to, the artwork went off to rank and then was promptly sort of lost. So they printed the posters and the posters were loaded into the same vans that carried the film cans to cinemas around the com- country. And that was film promotion in the UK. It was a bunch of vans and some old boys in an attic. So you and Jim decided that there was a, there was a market, there was a niche there. Take a more serious approach to it and carefully target it. So if you've got a particular type of film, you could aim it at a particular audience and recommend you know, doing radio and TV commercials to promote it and uh, develop specific uh, campaigns in the press or posters that would, that would target people. There was a whole chain of films in the 70s 
awful, crappy Italian weepies. They were called things like the last snows of spring. Tell me that one. Yes, you say it's, it's, it's boy meets girl, girl takes two hours to die. Basically, yeah. And, and, then, and, and I thought, oh God, uh, you know, it's going to be like advertising all over again. Except I realised there was a market for every film. And yeah, I met a woman who, who told me she'd seen it 92 times. And it was her favourite all-time film. And I thought... That's interesting, and we looked at that, you know, home market. And but your promotional thing was a box of tissues. Boxes of tissues. <laughs> take somebody to wipe away a tear. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and I, you know, it worked worked brilliantly. On the, on the back of that, they ended up distributing another half dozen of these damn things. So we hoist with our own petard. But um, lots of you know uh, uh, horror exp- exploitation movies and and peculiar films that wouldn't get released now, like you know. Um, uh, Where's Papa and um, uh, Harold and Maud and this kind of odd. These were these would go straight to, to to video now. You did end up with a, a fantastic uh, background in, well, particularly British movies. Yeah, you saw all the all the uh, foreign ones as well. But you you have an encyclopedic knowledge of of old British films. I mean, I thought I was all right, but completely out of my depth. When, no, uh, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge. Kim Newman has an encyclopedic knowledge. Because <laughs> he always corrects me. He read the book and said, there's a mistake on page something like that. And he was right. It's, it's, it's a really small one. <laughs> he, he spotted it immediately. Um, but uh, I, well, I suppose... You just spend all your life in, in the Yeah, movies, I mean, you? you know, you go to work in the morning. The first thing you do at nine o'clock in the morning, see a movie. Lunchtime, see a movie. Evening, see a movie. Oh, but even before that, you you would you would go into the movies as often as you could, uh, even yeah. from home. You you were born in Greenwich, weren't you? Yeah. Um, and then uh, when you were working in advertising, it was it was your first choice of of uh, recreation. Yeah, totally. I was a kid in the candy store when the job came up because, you know, it was like uh, doing the thing you most wanted to do in the world and get paid for it. Because there were all those rep cinemas back then we i mean we didn't have them where i came you, you might not have liked uh, greenwich in the 70s but you should have been in bradford mate <laughs> it was a cultural <laughs> desert and the, the, what I, mean, I got my limited education in old movies from the tv which again you don't get anymore because it's all it's all ghettoized you know you can go to tcm and watch the old yeah. movies there but if you watch the mainstream channels they don't show those old films anymore. no not at all i, I used to work in a, a an office with a bunch of um younger people, about 10 years ago, and I realised they'd never heard of films that I thought everybody had seen. I did a sort of a, a quick top 10 of, of the first unmissable films that I thought, that I came, you know, off my top of my head, um, like uh, The Third Man and, uh, and Philadelphia Story, things like that. They hadn't heard of any of them. Black and white, isn't it? But yeah, black people, and white. People actually don't want to watch black and white films. I mean, supposedly, you know, this is some market researcher somewhere has trotted out this fact. Which so, I mean, the, the days of seeing them, you know, on TV are gone. But I think uh, an awful lot of those, uh, they were the only way to see them. And in the rep, and in the rep cinemas, because there were, there were a lot of repertory cinemas in London. And weird ones, they weren't kind of like nice places like the NFT. They were kind of rat holes with double bills that changed every day. And um, they kind of attracted two types of people, or three types of people. People kind of who had nowhere else to go basically, which was like sheltering from the rain. Um, people who had a curious obsession with, say, that particular movie, like they collect all the movies of Fred McMurray or someone, you know. And uh, let's say Lonely Bachelor Gentleman. And you and Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and, and me and Jim. And what we used to have to do is weigh up how badly we wanted to see a movie. Because there was a cinema, there was a notorious cinema in Victoria, 
Well, there's an awful lot of seat changing going on all the time. It was very, very, it was, it was all felt vaguely uh, peculiar. And, uh, and I thought, we're never going to get a chance to see this particular double bill ever again. So then you have to weigh it against, how badly do I want to see it? You know, and can I stand going to this terrible cinema? So, I, I, one of the things I wanted to find out from you is, it, 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 was there a golden age of British movies? Because you can, you can blow hot and cold. You, you, can, you can get uh, enthusiastic, no, elegiac about pretty well any period. But you can be extremely rude about most of the periods of British films as well. And I, it was there a golden age, or was it always? Um, you know, no, this is the thing. I, I follow Matthew Sweet's uh, remark about um, don't, not becoming a Bakelite sniffing nostalgist. Because um, I really, I really hate nostalgia. <laughs> but um, there were lots of great, there were lots of wonderful films. There were lots of dreadful films simultaneously. I don't think you can define a golden age. But if you were going to try and nail it down, there will be two distinct periods: British post-war film, which be around the Ealings, and a lot of other films that were out at the same time, because so many people went to the cinema. It was basically the only affordable entertainment. Um, and from about 62 to 68, which was really this immense flowering of, of uh, British cinema when we were making big movies like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, so, and of course, the Beatles films, things like that. So suddenly swinging London and it, it burst forward and, and it kind of quickly toppled over into decadence and surrealism. So you had, you had Ken Russell starting to make terrible films. <laughs> Listomania. <and laughs> you, you, you cite as one of the... And God, that the was a terrible film. unwatchable film. Well, any film with Roger Daltrey trying to act in it is um, going to be a bit of a non-starter. And a, and a kind of peculiar electronic Rick Wakeman-esque score done to Franz Liszt. It's just, I think he was, try, he was trying to capitalise on the fact that in Tommy he basically created, created the first music video and uh, he, the second one didn't really work. And there were lots of other films that just showed you that it had lost the plot. By 1970, it had lost the plot and it had gone. Well, so much had gone. The, the, those, those rep cinemas had gone. And the film industry that you knew in Soho um, was going as well. Yeah. Um, and that's quite, quite sad. I mean, it's quite a sad note in the book is the, is the, the dying of, of, uh, of that, little, that little world of, of, of movies. In it, was, it was unique. You'd, uh, as you'd walk down the street and on both sides of the road, you'd just see film posters from the top to, from one end to the other. And they're all in the uh, one side had these little um, curvy windows, which just had were filled with film memorabilia and prop shops and uh, technical shops. It was, you know, it was at the nearest we would ever have got to Hollywood. And uh, it oh, just no, all that's went away. not true, is it? Because there's a couple of chapters in here where you go to LA and you work in Hollywood. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was not completely sure about this. Your, your film company must have been successful. We sit in this this Xanadu of a, of a mansion in King's Cross here. I mean, there's there's uh, Susan Alexander completing a jigsaw in the fireplace over there. I mean, they, so it, it can't have been because you're very funny and very de self-deprecating. There are the visits to Cannes, which you you make big comic fun of, and then there's there's opening a nightclub, which. <laughs> then shots. There's your your uh, time in in LA trying to do the same thing in America, and and you're self-deprecating about it, but it must have all worked out because you had a career out of it. Yeah, I actually in that list, I didn't mercifully didn't include for your sake my my abortive Christmas single, and <laughs> uh, which I have I somewhere in a cupboard, and various other things. I mean, 
But the great thing, I think, about those times was there was opportunity to try lots of different things. So when we had the film company, it made sense that as we were working on so many American films, let's go to Hollywood, let's set up an office in Hollywood. And so I went to Beverly Hills with a suitcase and stayed in a hotel that turned out to be a brothel. And um, uh, we basically got our first client by knocking on doors, making phone calls and knocking on doors. And then we stayed... Well, it's, I think the company's, well, the company's still there. And so I went in 1980, and it's still going, but in a different form. The temptation to steal all your one-liners is, is almost overwhelming, but you, you, ne- you nearly sold a script that you didn't have um, to, to a producer who thought you were a writer. <laughs> oh, you mean about the four horsemen? I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because um, uh, basically at that point, I, I, was, I was writing books and one of them had been sold to Paramount and I looked in on Paramount to this executive and when you go, when you go to have your meetings at Paramount, you sit, it's basically like a sort of dentist waiting room, you sit in a corridor with a load of other people all waiting to pitch and they see you on the half hour and you get exactly half hour. So I was booked in to see this guy and he came out and he said, hey Chris, your project, we screwed up, what else have you got? And, and I suddenly realised I wasn't there to talk about the, 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 the film of my book. I was there to pitch. So, um, I, yeah, I came up with this terrible idea of um, a film executive who finds out that he's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then my agent phoned me and said, he loves it. He loves it. You have to write it up as a treatment. <laughs> but until you deliver, we have to keep him away from a Bible because he thinks you made them up. <laughs> Yeah, you get a lot of stuff like that in Hollywood. I mean, the, the problem problem is that if they had all been better read, they would have had tons and tons of projects to work from. But nobody in Hollywood had ever picked up a book. So I think it was one bookstore and when I was there. I'm sure it's better now, but... Um, you know, if they'd have read more, they'd have, they'd have found the copyright-free rights to some great films to make. Whereas all the, the Louis B. Mayers and, and that crowd were illiterate European Jews who had such respect for the written word that they did go and get proper writers to come. And yeah. They did sort of buy up the rights to, uh, to they books. Got, they got emigre Europeans and <laughs> they bought up rights to quite, quite, sometimes quite obscure books. Now, you were keen on the escapist films of your youth, but less happy with them now. They're all flying teenagers in tights and all CGI. You just don't like that anything like as much. I tell you, and I think I, I take your point. I, it's kind of a mix. I mean, there are, there are a lot of great ones that I've loved, you know, in the recent, like the you know Batman reboots and the Star Trek reboots and things like that. Um, and some great animated stuff. But it's this thing about demographically deciding that everything has to be remade with teenagers. There was this idea that, you know, they, they remade uh, uh, Rear Window with the teenager, and there was an idea that they were going to remake every Hitchcock film, but with teenagers. I can see it in the pitch, can't you? When it's like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to remake every old movie, notion. but with teens. And, and that's kind of a bit sad. I mean, it's uh, uh, the fact that everything has to be demographically squared off into one particular and also, Group. it's in a way, it's too easy, isn't it, to have to have spectacle? You know, if you saw Avatar, you had to see it on a big screen because you see it as a movie, and there's not very much there. It's a terrible film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but again, you see, they they recog- they recognised that they were making less money in America, and they had to open up China and India. So Hollywood sold in massive amount of 3D projection equipment. So which is why you get Kung Fu Panda. 
you know, it's set in China because it's going for the Chinese market. You know, it's very simple. Well, Chris, Film Freak is absolutely marvellous. It's an absolute, it's a romp. Uh, it's very funny and it's terribly touching. The, uh, the, I, I mean, I felt I knew Jim Sturgeon, your partner, by the end as a personal friend. And, um, and that, that comes across beautifully. So it's got, it's got all the value of novels and it's all true. Yeah, I'm afraid it is. Yeah, it's all the ugly truth. Chris Fowler, thank you very much. A pleasure. Film Freak is published by Doubleday at £16.99. That was Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. More details can be found at www.green-shoot.com or Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.